Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, it is my unfortunate honor to nominate as the most horribly influential presidential campaign, the campaign that gave way to all the disgusting things we see today in modern elections, a campaign that gave us fake news, fake polls, deplorable debates, mudslinging beyond reproach, and two nominees that should never have been on a ticket. The presidential election of 1988. Mr. Speaker, if you are unfamiliar with the campaign that redefined how we elect a president, then stay tuned for this week's This Was a Thing. With Al Pacino, whoa. Cabbage Patch Dolls and Teddy Ruxpin. McRib and Cher Spoonstrap. Oscar win, that was a thing. This was a thing. Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Rob. And I'm Daniel. And you are listening to This Was a Thing, the retro podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. Friends, an election season is upon us. Yes, it Yay. is. Oh, and boy. you are probably sick of everything that you are seeing, probably on television, in the news, because politics has become so dirty. Would you agree with that, gentlemen? I, yes, absolutely. Yeah, hold on. Hold on really quick. Oh. I think I have to vomit because I'm so sick of everything I'm seeing on TV. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, well, folks. Would you believe it? No. Okay, then great. I have nothing else to say. Would you believe that politics at one point was not as dirty as it is today? And the reason that it is as dirty as it is today is because of one specific election that happened within the past 50 years, and that is the 1988 presidential election, the election that changed the rules. Prior to 1988, yes, there was always some dirty politics, but nothing like what we saw in 88. Are you boys ready to learn about the 1988 election and how it led to the destruction of the American government that we are seeing today? Take it away, please, boys. Yes. Yeah. Do I need to get behind like a, a curtain uh, thing? Like like a vo I'm voting? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. That's smart. Listen, I got so much to tell you. First of all, friends, a couple of things before we begin. I did major in political science, so yes, I did. So if you have any questions, oh please uh, ask me. A major drop. And then also, I love history and I love politics, and Ray knows this, so please forgive me. Okay, so friends, we're going to go back now to 19... I got to give you a little history and lead up to what this election was about in, in order for you to understand. So once again, like I said before, every fucking pundit and commentator and nasty debate and and smear tactic that's used against all of these different people all came from the 1988 election and one guy in one guy specifically by the name of Lee Atwater and there's a brilliant documentary on YouTube called A Boogeyman the Lee Atwater story. And he lays out in this beautiful documentary everything that Mr. Atwater did that is still with us today. So first of all, we're going to have to jump back to 1980 to go to understand the 88 election. 1980, it's the Reagan revolution. Trickle down, baby. Oh, yeah, we're going to get into trickle down in a second. Hold on. As we remember, Ronald Reagan elected president in 1980. He takes over after Jimmy Carter. The 70s were very tumultuous. And everyone, when, 
Reagan got elected was actually, most people were actually very excited by this because he was going to come in and set a little reset button on America because America had been, we had the Iran hostage crisis, we had had Watergate, we had had inflation, we had the gas crisis, we had Three Mile Island. So people were very, very happy to get a reset. What was Ronald Reagan's uh, campaign slogan? Anyone remember? Give one for the Gipper. Nope. Make America great again? Very good, Daniel. It was make America great again. Yeah. So first term Reagan, it goes pretty well. Um, And then he runs against in the 1984 election. This is a big one. He runs in 1984 against Walter Mondale, who was the vice president of Jimmy Carter back in the 1970s. And congratulations, Mr. Reagan. Ronald Reagan wins 49 states. 49 states. Fucking crazy. He won 49 states. He only lost one state that was Minnesota, and that was Walter Mondale's home state. Reagan is is doing really well for himself. The Democrats are going to remember that they literally lost 49 states. So they're going to be prepping for the 88 election. And then they're given then they're given a little bit of a blessing because in the middle of Reagan's second term, he gets hit with the Iran-Contra scandal. And for those of you who don't remember, all you need to know about the Iran-Contra sample, I'll, I'll, scandal, I'll try to summarize this for you, is that the White House, specifically the Reagan administration, had sold weapons to Iran, remember they held us hostage, apparently to secure the release of several Americans being held hostages by radical Islamic groups in the Middle East. And on top of that, the administration then admitted that some of the money from that arms deal with Iran had been covertly and illegally funneled into a fund aid to help the Contras in Nicaragua. So what was happening really was there was a shadow government that Congress, the Senate, the American people were just not aware of. So this looks pretty bad for Ronald Reagan. Can we get a round of applause for Ollie North? Ollie North, who took the fall, who fell on his sword. Um, And if you go back to our Year of the Bimbo episode, you'll listen to about Fawn Hall, who was his secretary, who helped shred documents. Anyway, what he's doing is completely illegal, and it's going to be a massive, massive problem. So because of that, though... The conservatives are going to be really, really weak going into the 88 election. Now, here we go. One of the things you have to remember is that prior to Ronald Reagan, presidents were not really, I'm going to say it, not really attractive and not really charismatic. They were all kind of stiff. Even somebody like JFK, who we all think about today, is like, oh, he was so you know handsome. He was stiff as can be. When Reagan comes into office, because Reagan was an uh, an actor at one point, he was confident, he had warmth, he had a quick wit, and he was brilliant with a soundbite. I mean, if he can befriend a chimp, he can become president of the United States. Anyone who could befriend a monkey uh, pretty much can become president of the United States. That's, that's yeah. Bonzo for you, folks. Um, and he was so good. And because news at this time was going into a 24-hour news cycle, um, he was like catnip for the press. So what you have to remember is when he's leaving, because he can't run for a third term, when he's leaving, the press is now expecting somebody as charismatic and as quotable as Ronald Reagan to take over for him. We had never had that before. Before it was like boring A, boring B. Now you gotta live up to him. So the Democrats, we're gonna take a look at who's running on the Democratic side. Because they were so brutalized in 1984, they decided we can't get our shit kicked out of us again in 88. So they formed a committee to recruit different individuals um, that they could possibly run for president of the United States. And here were some of the people they were looking at. Jesse Jackson, a senator from Tennessee named Al Gore, a guy named Paul Simon, not the same Paul Simon, a bow tie wearing Paul Simon, Congressman Dip Gephardt, a governor from Massachusetts named Michael Dukakis, a senator from Delaware named Joe Biden, and a senator from Colorado 
Gary Hart. And all money was on Gary Hart because he was quotable, he was charismatic, and he was good-looking. But if you remember from our Year of the Bimbo episode, we had a little problem with Gary Hart, which was he had an affair, and he dared the press. He's like, I'm such a moral guy. Follow me around with a camera. And they did. And they found the mistress leaving his apartment. Um, And so he dropped out of the race in 87. So now the Democrats are like, well, well, fuck, what are we going to do? Because we had all of our, everything was pinned on this one guy. We go down to the Iowa caucuses and uh, in the Iowa caucuses, Dick Gephardt, he finished first. Paul Simon finished second. Michael Dukakis finished third. And then when they get to New Hampshire, where Dukakis is the governor of Massachusetts, suddenly because he's on the East Coast, he's doing a little bit better for himself. He finishes first in New Hampshire primary. He uh, does pretty, pretty well as the primaries go on. And then Super Tuesday, he wins six primaries in the Super Tuesday. Gore comes in with five and Jesse Jackson comes in with five. So now we've got two people tailing Dukakis. Now, Al Gore wants to paint Uh, Michael Dukakis with the capital L word, which is liberal, um, which is a dirty word back then. Liberal is a dirty word. And so all he wants to do is say Dukakis is too liberal, too liberal, too liberal, too liberal. It actually doesn't help Al Gore and Al Gore eventually drops out of the race. And what's going to be really interesting for us is that when we get to the Democratic convention, nobody knows who the nominee is going to be because Jesse Jackson's not giving up and Michael Dukakis is not giving up. So the two of them are going to go to this convention and go against each other head to head. That's what's happening over in Democrat land. How are the Republicans doing once again? Ronald Reagan can't run for president again. He can't have a third term. So people are going to start to like dip their toe into the pool. Um, and the three main people we have to look at who are going to run are Reverend Pat Robertson. Remember Pat Robinson? Oh, good guy. Good guy. Oh, yeah. He's running. And a religious, wonderful, faithful, um, everything is horrible because of gay people, Pat Robinson. He eventually had to drop out of the race because he kept running on a war record where he said he was a Korean War Marine um, and what happened, who saw battle. But his battalion came out and said, actually, not only did he never see battle, his main job in the Marines was to get alcohol for everybody and keep parties going. That was pretty much what he did. So he had to back off. And it was really up now to two individuals that were left in this race, Senator Bob Dole and the Vice President of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush. Bob Dole had experience. He had run for vice president. Um, He was considered uh, a a, a viable candidate by many, many different individuals. But there was one thing he did not have, friends, and that was a young, I mean young, I mean like 20-year-old guy named Lee Atwater. And anything you see today in politics is because of this guy, Lee Atwater. Um, Have you guys heard his name before? I don't know anything about who he is. I just, I've heard the name. Lee Atwater created what I think is modern dirty politics. He got started in South Carolina working um, for uh, a Republican incumbent by the name of Floyd Spence. And Floyd Spence was running against this guy, a Democrat named, here's ready for this. Here we go, friends. Weird names in our podcast. I thought Floyd Spence was good enough. Tom Turnipseed. That's great. That is awesome. He He didn't win? That's a great name. I know, right? Now, what Atwater did was he's like, how do I get Floyd Spence to beat Tom Turnipseed? <laughs> Tom was a very, very popular individual. So Duh. he created push polling and had independent pollsters, and they were so-called independent pollsters that uh, Atwater had hired, and they called 
white suburbanites in South Carolina and ask them general survey questions like, you know, how do you feel about busing and how do you feel about the Pledge of Allegiance being said in schools? And then they said, and how would you feel if you found out that Tom Turnipseed was a member of the NAACP, which he wasn't, but it planted, no pun intended, the seed in the minds of these white voters that Tom Turnipseed was aligning himself with black individuals. Then he got Senator Strom Thurmond Ugh. to send out letters saying that Tom Turnipseed would disarm the United States, turn it over to liberals and communists. All not true. And then finally, this is where it gets really tricky. At a press briefing, Lee Atwater planted a fake reporter who rose and asked Atwater, we understand that uh, Turnipseed has had psychiatric treatment. Not true. And off the record, off the record, he said, oh, yeah, he's like, Tom Turnipseed used to get hooked up to jumper cables, referring to um, electroshock therapy that Turnipseed underwent as a teenager. So he plants the story, then is the anonymous source who funnels the story, and there's literally no legitimacy to anything that he's saying. He literally tells, he goes, hey, 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 I heard he got electroshock therapy. And then someone asked him, did he get electroshock therapy? And goes, well, I don't want to say anything, but keep me off the record. He did. Now, once again, surprise, surprise, because it's no different than what we're dealing with now. Race is an issue. What? And a reporter asks Lee Atwater, and this is on tape, so I'm not making this up. I'm going to read you an exact quote. Somebody asked Lee Atwater in 1980, when Reagan was running for president, reporter asks, quote, but the fact is, isn't it, that Reagan does not get to the Wallace voter, that's pretty much the Southern racist voter, mm -hmm. and to the racist side of the Wallace voter by doing away with legal services by cutting down on food stamps. So the questioner is really asking, if you're white and you're racist against black people, how is Reagan helping you weed out black individuals? Because what, what is cutting a food stamp program going to do? Why can't we go back to segregation? This is Atwater's word-for-word word exact response. Ready? Y'all don't quote me on this. You start out in 1954 by saying N-word, N-word, N-word. And by 1968, you can't say N-word. That hurts you. Backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes. And all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and, and that, that coded, that we are doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. You follow me? Because obviously, sitting around saying we want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing and a hell of a lot more abstract than N-word, N-word. So any way you look at it, race is coming on the back burner, end quote. That's fucking insane. Oh, my God. And what he's, what he's created is now called the Southern Strategy. This Southern Strategy, friends, is still being used today. You don't have to go down there anymore and say the basic. It's coded. You're coding it. Like voting rights. That's coded. Forced bus, it's coded. So he's the one who is the architect behind this modern way of communication, or campaigning, I should say. Now, Reagan has a political director named Ed Rollins. He's running Reagan's re-election campaign in 84, and he sees Lee Atwater in South Carolina, and he sees the genius work that he's doing, and he's like, come on in. And he's like, and the area that I'm going to put you on, Lee, is the dirty tricks department. 
He said, that's where you can be of the best use to us. Um, he's also going to come for Ed Rollins' job, which is also kind of hot. So Ed ends up having like his ass handed to him by the guy he hires. Whole other story. Sounds like he did his job if he was in the Dirty Tricks department, though. Right? He did He did a good job. Now, in 1984, oh, it was historic because it was the first time a, a female was running uh, on a major ticket. It was a woman named Geraldine Ferraro. She was a congresswoman from uh, the state of New York. And Lee Atwater... There was no scandal on Mondale. He was just boring. The, what they were able to find, though, on Geraldine Ferraro was that her parents had been arrested for number running, like, years and years earlier. And she and her husband had tax issues. Like, it's the same thing where, like, they did a couple of different loopholes to, like, have cheaper taxes. 88 elections coming up now because they, they win the 84 re-election campaign. And Lee Atwater jumps over Ed Rollins to George Bushland and says to Bush, I want to be, I want to be your campaign manager. And Ed Rollins is like, I thought that was my job. And George Bush is like, yeah, but I think I could probably win with Lee Atwater. Also on uh, George Bush's campaign team, in addition to uh, uh, Mr. Atwater is uh, George W. Bush, uh, Mr. Bush's son, and a gentleman by the name of Roger Ailes. Oh, good guy. If that name sounds familiar to anybody. Isn't he associated with Fox News? Is that correct? Oh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. Okay. So this is what this is what Atwater and Ailes pretty much figure out. I don't know if George W. Bush, the son, is in on this. But the big question that's around George H.W. Bush at this time is, who is this guy? He... He was this enigma. He was a New Englander, but he was living in Texas, and he he was an oil man in Texas, but he had homes in Kennebunkport, Maine. He was an oil man, then he was a congressman. He was an ambassador to the UN under Nixon. Then Nixon made him the chair of the RNC. He was considered for vice president for a few times. Then in the 70s, he was the the CIA director. Oh, yeah, that's right. But no, like the, the general public didn't know him. They just didn't know him. Reagan in 1980 is looking for a vice presidential candidate. He goes first to Gerald Ford, who had been president, hmm. and said we could be a co-presidency ticket. Ooh. And Ford is like, no. He's like, I want it like the whole thing or nothing. So they were like, well, let's go with George Bush because at least he's moderate and people sort of know him at this point. As you know, being vice president, you don't do anything. Jack shit. You just don't do anything. You do nothing. So they they gave George Bush a couple of like little jobs and shit to do. Like he was on deregulation and drug trafficking, nothing big. And the one thing George Bush, because he knew he was going to run in 88, the one thing he kept saying over and over again is, I'm the last person that leaves the office. I'm the last person involved on any decision. Mr. Reagan doesn't do anything without me. I'm like the second president. Da, 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 da. Then Iran-Contra comes up and he's like, I wasn't there. I don't know what was <laughs> happening. I was. I didn't know I was, it happened when I wasn't there. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. like once again, <laughs> kind of looks like, kind of looks like a wimp. So you're saying there's hypocrisy in the Republican Party back in '88? That's what I'm saying. So what you wow. what you're seeing here is an individual who's out of the loop. Because now, voters, you have two choices with Mr. Bush. Either one, he was so ineffectual they didn't include him in any policy, including Iran Contra, or he's a fucking crook who knew what was going on has been lying about it. So either way, he's not doing too good. So here's the thing. Here's the idea that Lee Atwater comes up with, which is our candidate is weak. Don't look at him. Look at that guy. We'll tear down everyone else and they'll look good and he'll look good in comparison because he had no real record to run on. 
Does this sound familiar to? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're we're talking about both sides, friends. I'm not just talking about the Republican Party, but both sides have now come up with this idea because of Lee Atwater, which is my candidate. Really, he has no policy. He has nothing to offer. So let's tear down the other guys, and we're going to do it with dirty tricks. Bob Dole in the primaries is running against George Bush, and Lee Atwater flooded New Hampshire during the primaries with all these commercials saying that Bob Dole was a tax raiser, which he wasn't. And Bob Dole gets interviewed that night, and they're like, how do you feel about that? And he comes off like a petulant child because he starts crying, and he's like, stop lying about my record. And he starts to cry. Now, today we have a lot of people that say things like this. This had not happened before. The fact that this candidate was going on the news and asking George Bush, stop lying about my record, made Dole look weak and ineffective, and he lost New Hampshire, leading George Bush to go to the Republican nomination. Happy New Year, Ray. Happy New Year, Rob. Any resolutions? Yeah, to be more generous. You? Same. I wonder if any of our listeners wish to be more generous, too. Well, listeners, if generosity is on your resolution list, head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And search for This Was a Thing and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we're doing. And if your resolution is to get rid of all your fatty foods and start a healthy diet, please mail me all fatty foods courtesy of the UPS store on Amsterdam Avenue. Stop that. Mm. May this year bring you happiness, health, and Howard the Duck. Miss Cleo foresees a wonderful year ahead. The cards don't lie. So now, friends, we know George Bush is going to be the Republican nominee. Who's going to be the Democratic nominee? Convention and Democratic is also epic because they're slinging the mud. Ann Richards, who is the governor of Texas, gets off this amazing barb towards George Bush, saying, you can't blame George. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth. (laughs) That's a good zinger. It's a good zinger. And it's, it's, it's many considered to be the first, like, Haha, I'm going to get you now. Um, Because it wasn't nice, it wasn't civil, it was kind of mean. Dukakis obviously gets the nomination. He's now considered to be the Massachusetts miracle because they did not think that such a nice man with no scandal involved, who was really running on policy, would get the nomination. He and Jesse Jackson, they're still going head to head. And the Jackson supporters were like, you have to make uh, Jesse Jackson vice president. And Michael Dukakis is like, that's not going to happen pretty big. And uh, he chose a guy named Lloyd Benson, who was a senator from Texas at this time as his vice presidential running mate. Now, we're going over to the Republican convention. And if you remember our episode in the 1992 scandal, um, sorry, the, the, the Murphy Brown scandal from 1992, you'll remember the name Dan Quayle. Oh, I should also tell you that the Republicans attacked the Democrats on their color choice at the convention. Of course they did. They, uh, the Democrats chose pastel coloring, <laughs> and uh, the Republicans thought that was kind of weak and gay. So Wow. Okay. Liberal. George Bush, very clear. He's going to get the nomination, but they don't know who his vice president's going to be. As, you, as we all know, whoever the vice presidential nomination is going to, it's the first big decision that this individual is going to make. And- it shows you what kind of president they're going to be based on that decision. Uh, look at uh, John McCain and Sarah Palin. 
and sometimes the vice presidential, it, it's supposed to help in some way. Like uh, Lloyd Benson is from the South. Michael Dukakis is from the East. That's going to be a balance. So George Bush was like, well, who can we pick? And they looked at a lot of different people. And they finally came down to this senator from Indiana named Dan Quayle, who is this young, young man and not the brightest bulb, as, as we will come to find out. And the press goes nuts. And they're like, who is he? How is he being the vice president? And why did George Bush make this decision? And the only answer a lot of people can give is, well, he's attractive. <laughs> so good for you, Dan Quayle. George Bush has a, a convention where he babbles on about a thousand points of light. Nobody knows what the fuck it even means, but he's talking about it. <laughs> but the big thing from the convention is, is he t- he promises people. He says, read my lips. No, no new, new taxes. taxes. Right. Yep. Read my lips. No new taxes. And the audience goes crazy. But now here we now get into the real part of the campaign, because what is this guy's record? And Lee Atwater knows I have nothing to run this guy on. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to attack, attack, attack Dukakis until he is absolutely diminished in front of the voter. And his weakness is going to make George Bush look stronger. So it actually happens with a lot of like lies. I don't know what else to say. Like, and a lot of mistruths. Oh my God. For example, for example, uh, there was a bill in uh, Massachusetts when when Michael Dukakis was governor that required teachers to lead school children in reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. And he vetoed that bill as governor. And the entire Republican Party was like, how dare he? How dare he? You know, um, you're, you're, if, a, if a teacher wants to lead a school child in the Pledge of Allegiance, you're telling me that a, a teacher can be thrown into jail for celebrating America? How dare you? And what Dukakis tried to articulate was, he said, it's not an issue of whether or not I support reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, because I do, but whether a chief executive of a state or a nation knowingly would sign an unconstitutional bill into law. And he tried to get back at Bush and said, if the vice president is not fully aware of how this policy works, I'm a little worried about him becoming president. Doesn't matter because the story's already out there. Every time they want Dukakis to hit back against Bush, he says no. He says the record will speak for itself. This is not good. This is not good. But the thing I think everyone is going to remember from this 1988 campaign, because it is probably one of the most brilliant political commercials ever, was a commercial that was just simply called the Willie Horton commercial. Have you guys seen this or have you ever talked about this in any of your political classes? Yes. I haven't. No. Michael Dukakis uh, supported a felon furlough program that was actually started under a Republican governor. And uh, the Massachusetts legislature passed a measure to ban furloughs for first degree murderers. And Dukakis vetoed that particular bill, which meant that first degree murderers could go out on furlough. There was a person by the name of Willie Horton. He was serving a life sentence for first-degree murder Mm -hmm. because he stabbed a boy to death during a robbery. He got released on a weekend furlough. He kidnapped a young couple on the furlough, tortured the man, and then sexually assaulted the woman. So in order to show that Dukakis was soft on crime and that, hey, the the criminal needs more sympathy than the victim, they created this black-and-white commercial, 30 seconds. And it wasn't even the Bush campaign. It was like... Friends of George W. So that way they had no association with it in which there's a revolving door 
outside of a prison. And all these prisoners are going through while they're narrating, saying how soft on crime Michael Dukakis was. As Governor Michael Dukakis vetoed mandatory sentences for drug dealers, he vetoed the death penalty. His revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole. While out, many committed other crimes like kidnapping and rape, and many are still at large. There's only one black actor in that line of prisoners, and that black actor is the only one who makes direct eye contact with the camera, (sighs) staring into the camera saying, he let the criminal he let black criminals out before they're going to do it again and then they're going to come for you once again they didn't say what i just said but that was the coding behind it once again going back to the southern strategy if you talk in the abstract they'll know they'll deep down they'll know but then you don't come off looking like racist like a racist and this commercial was everywhere absolutely everywhere and i think we've seen similar stuff today would you agree or disagree oh yeah absolutely so finally michael dukakis is like they were like you need to fight back you need to fight back and he was like i'm not going to because (laughs) oh boy reason will out dirty politics is not good he's like i will win on my record so there was a woman working for him a deputy field director named donna brazil um, who's now a very famous political pundit. Yeah. She was getting so frustrated because she's like, you have to fucking do something. Like George Bush was involved in this huge fucking scandal where there was a shadow government going on. Like it, we don't want to get him on that. Or the fact that he was an ineffectual vice president. But this was an open secret in Washington. Bush had been having an affair for a really long time with his personal assistant, a woman named Jennifer Fitzgerald. And like everybody, it was one of those things, every, everybody knew about it. And so she was like, fuck it. If you're not going to do anything, I will. So she leaked it to the press. And she's like, I don't how, understand how George Bush can comment on morality when he's been fucking his secretary for 20 years. Obviously not on those terms. And Dukakis does what to Donna Brazil? Fires her. He fires her because he goes, that's not really how it's done. Dukakis says, I'm going to show people how strong I actually am. And I'm not going to use words or insult George Bush to do it. And this is probably, there have been articles written about this, um, about probably one of the most notorious campaign PR moments in campaign history. It's September 13th, 1988. They take Dukakis to the General Dynamics facility in Sterling Heights, Michigan. uh, And they're going to show him how uh, um, a tank works. How a tank works. Oh, that's right. Oh, God. And for those of you who don't know, Michael Dukakis was a small man. He was uh, maybe about 5'7", five, 5'8", five, with big, thick, bushy eyebrows and uh, big, thick, like, comb over hair. I'm trying to think, like, who he would look like today. John Lovett played him on SNL, and I yes. feel like that's a perfect thing. And I will say really quick, you're describing Dukakis, and then a tank is not, it's the exact opposite of what that, of Dukakis. So big. Very good. Uh, no hair. Uh, yeah, cannon. Very good. They put him in this tank. They get all these reporters there. And like a little hedgehog, <laughs> he pops up from the tank wearing this dumb fucking helmet. And they were like, don't put on the helmet. We told you don't put on the helmet. And he's like, well, I have to be safe. And he goes, the helmet has the radio. So I want to hear what they're saying in there. He looks so stupid. It didn't help either that when he came up, they'd play the Caddyshack song. I'm he literally right. looks like the, like the gopher. From <laughs> it, it wasn't. It wasn't like in a, a USA God Bless America or anything. It was like 
I'm all right. And they're going like in circles with the tank in this empty field. And he looks like he's going to fall out and he looks nauseous. Like it's it is the worst thing you've, down. you've ever seen in your life. And finally, the, a reporter is leaving and looks at uh, Dukakis's campaign and say, that might have cost you the election, but besides that, it was great. <laughs> the New York Times, um, if you remember, friends, uh, which is a more left-leaning newspaper, filed just 274 words on the matter. Uh, their headline was, forget John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, forget Rambo, meet macho Mike Dukakis. The Bush campaign is so, this is literally a gift that's handed to them on a silver platter because what they do is, is they take the footage of him rolling around in the tank and they run all these things that he's weak on defense about. They literally could not have asked for a better image or illustration to show how weak the guy is on security and defense. So while, if you look at the commercial, while he's like hopping along like a hedgehog, they're like, he vetoed this, he voted that, he doesn't know this, he doesn't know that. But finally, it comes down to the debates. And debates have changed so radically when they first started. Um, the first few debates, a presidential debates, 76 and 80, were mostly done by newspaper journalists. In 84 and then really in 88, they start getting rid of journalists – I'm sorry, print journalists – and they start putting on television reporters – and I think the reason they're doing that is because they know that these reporters are pretty good at like gotcha questions and they know how to keep the ball in the air and they know how to make good dramatic television. There's only two presidential debates because Bush hates debates. And so he says to the press, look, they, they said to him, you're a wimp because you won't do a third debate. And he says, absolutely not. He's like, this isn't even a debate. And he actually says this in the last debate with Dukakis. He goes, this is, he goes, he goes, and he'll agree with me. He goes, this is not a debate. He's like, I get to articulate my platform. He gets to articulate his platform. And, I, and he says, you don't let us talk to each other. He said, so if you want, if people want to like know our platforms, we don't need a third debate. They can just read what we're saying. And I have to agree with that. I have to agree with that. They're not real debates. Because they're not allowed to talk to each other. Right. So the first debate that they have with each other, people pretty much walk away saying that it's a tied debate. Um, Bush and Dukakis both are you know pretty average in their debating world. And it was mostly jur print journalists asking these questions. Now, in between debate one and two, there's the vice presidential debate. And if there's anything – and this, these, this, the 88 election has two probably the most quotable – quotable things in, in presidential debates. In the vice presidential debate, they put Dan Quayle up against Lloyd Benson. And Dan Quayle is asked the question, you're really young. You know, what, what, what are your qualifications if you're a heartbeat away from the presidency? Where are your parents? And where are your parents, sir? You shouldn't be out this late. And Dan Quayle says, he goes, I had the, sa I had the same amount of age and experience that Jack Kennedy did uh, when he became president. So basically he's saying, we've done this before, it's not a big deal. Well, Lloyd Benson brilliantly looks at Dan Quayle and just says, Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. And Quayle is just sitting there literally with egg on his face. And all he can do Quail is egg. look at Lloyd Benson and just go, that was uncalled for. And Lloyd Benson comes back and says, no, he's like, you're the one who made the comparison. I'm just telling you it's not accurate. Lloyd Benson's like, uh, D's? 
uh, D's nuts. <laughs> Who's got two thumbs and is going to be the vice president? Oh, this guy. And it makes Quayle look so weak and even weaker is George Bush because this is the first decision that he's made. And so now the Dukakis campaign keeps running this clip over and over and over again with just a simple tagline. It's good to be a Toys R Us kid. Oh, no, that was also another one they ran. Just a heartbeat away from the presidency. That's brilliant. That's a crazy line, though. Just a heartbeat away from the presidency. I don't know. That's fucking like. Oh, it's so good. It's so. Yeah, that's one of those things that you hear and you go, huh. That's an interesting point. And while I think while the commercial's going on, there's like a heartbeat pounding in the background. <laughs> it's just like to baby people like, holy shit, if George Bush drops dead, this is this is the guy who's going to end the Cold War. Dan Quayle. The one time fucking Mike Dukakis decides to stand up is on October 5th is because the debate, the vice presidential debates, October 5th, less than a month away. He's like, maybe I should say something. And, and he's a shorter fellow. So no one even knew he stood up. Debate two probably has. The second most quotable line from a debate, I think. I think third is Jack Kennedy. This is number two. I think number one is Ronald Reagan in the 80 election asking people, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Which I think is like the best encapsulation of what someone has to do in a voting booth. It's genius. Just genius. So it's the day of the second debate. It's in Los Angeles. Dukakis's team goes up to his office, to his hotel suite to work with him. And Kitty answers the door. And she goes, he's not seeing anybody right now. <laughs> and they go, well, out. we have to prep him for the debate. She goes, well, he's got the flu and he's got a 103 degree fever and he sleeps all day and they get him on the debate stage. And if you watch the debate footage now, he doesn't look good. He looks really pale. He's off his game. Bush looked great. Bush was like tan and happy and healthy was probably fucking the assistant again he was happy he was ready to go once again non sequiturs like nobody would believe and that was the thing bush bush never really gave you a clear answer in a debate it was a lot of like waffling hemming and hawing but anyway the first question of the debate is going to go down in history the first question goes not to a print journalist but a television journalist by the name of bernard shaw uh, for us CNN Golf War fans, you might remember Bernard Shaw. Not George Bernard Shaw, not the, not the playwright. And they go, the first question is for Governor Dukakis, um, and it's going to be asked by CNN's Bernard Shaw. Bernard Shaw has said when he asked this question, he thought he was going to get in trouble because it was such a softball question that people were going to say to him, wow, you really wanted Dukakis to win this. And that's not what happened. He looks at Mike Dukakis and he says, if Kitty Dukakis was raped and murdered, would you favor the death penalty for the person who did it? Now, you have to ask yourself, you would think that that question would ignite a really passionate response from someone. Would you agree with that? You'd think. That would seem like a logical thing to think. But we're talking about Dukakis here. Or something along the lines of, you know, thank God there's a legal system in place because I would want to rip this guy's head off. You know, just something, and very clinically, as if he had been asked, you know, what kind of a shirt are you wearing? He just said, no, I don't, Bernard, and I'll tell you why. And then gave an academic, elitist, every, everything that is people accuse the Democrats of being, he, he was pretty much in this one sentence, which was simply saying, no, I don't believe in the death penalty. But there was no passion, there was no fire, there was no anger, there was no nothing. And in that moment, in that moment, they said George Bush won the election. Yeah. Because you saw somebody who was weak, 
who didn't have passion, who didn't have fire in them. The rest of the debate goes on pretty normally. The debate ends, and over the the last couple of days, they just keep running the fucking um, Dukakis not being able to answer that question, him in the tank, and, and he refuses, he refuses, he refuses to, to attack George Bush on absolutely anything. And the most important thing, which I think kind of gets forgotten in all of this, because Iran-Contra is still not over yet, if George Bush is guilty of a crime, he's going to be the next president. Or if Ronald Reagan is guilty of a crime, George Bush can pardon him. Does that make sense? Like, yep. that's kind of a big deal, folks. It's almost like if a president pardoned himself or a former president were to try to do that. Yes. So election night happens and it's it's uh, it's it's pretty good for George Bush. He gets uh, 53.4% of the uh, of the popular vote. He wins 426 electoral votes, um, and uh, he won uh, 40 uh, states. George Bush becomes uh, the 41st president of the United States, and uh, he rewards Lee Atwater, because I'm going to be honest with you, Lee Atwater got this guy the presidency. And I think you also had. I, I also think Mike Dukakis gave George Bush the presidency because they never once were able to find a way of articulating. But what you're really seeing in this election is the last campaign where both one of the two sides is still not trying not to play dirty. And it's like this is this is just simply based on what are our policies and what is our policy difference. And it's funny because everyone talks about how like heated the debates were and how like vicious this campaign was. And I watched both of their debates prior to this. They're friendly and tame compared to what we see today. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. Uh, so to think like what they were doing back then is was considered incendiary is so interesting to me. Bush rewards Lee Atwater because he names him the chair of the Republican uh, National Committee. And uh, when he's working as part of the RNC, the first couple of things that he does is he tries to uh, get um, Tom Foley, the new Democratic Speaker of the House, uh, outed for being a homosexual. And that doesn't really seem to work. And then um, George Bush gets inaugurated in 1989. And then in March of 1990, Lee Atwater uh, suffered a seizure and they uh, took him to the doctor. And they said to him, Mr. Mr. Atwater, uh, you actually have brain cancer Jeez. and your, your time is limited, sir. And he spent the last year of his life because he would die in March of 91 trying to repent to people and making amends. He wrote a letter to Tom Turnipseed and was like, everything I did, uh, I know that I made up and was a lie. And I'm really sorry because I know it lost your campaign. He sent um, a letter to Michael Dukakis, and he said, I'm really sorry, so I hope, I hope that you can forgive me. He's like, I found God, I found religion. And Ed Rollins, uh, he asked Ed Rollins to forgive him. And Ed Rollins was like, fuck off. Ed Rollins was like, fuck off. And so uh, Ed Rollins says, uh, Lee Atwater was telling a story about how a living, um, about how a living Bible uh, uh, what was what was giving him faith, and Lee Atwater said, I really sincerely hope that he found peace. And then uh, somebody told Ed Rollins after that, you know, when we were cleaning up his things afterwards, that Bible was still wrapped in cellophane and had never been taken out of the package. He's still up to his dirty tricks. Well, he, his politics were dirty, not his Bible. Spinning to the end. He died in 1991, Lee Atwater, at the age of 40. Oh, my gosh. That's awful. Oh, my God. He was only 40? He, this guy was only 40 years old. And in one election, the one election he got to run by himself, 
he changed the entire face of political history. What's really interesting about him is in 1990, uh, when he took over the RNC, um, they said, well, what, you know, what should we be focusing on? And he said the governor of Arkansas. He said that guy is really charismatic. And he said, I think that guy has a really, really good chance in 92. So let's begin getting all the dirt on him now. And so that was one of the last things he was doing was he was gathering a bunch of dirt on Bill Clinton because he said this guy's going to be a real, a real challenge to us in 92. And a lot, of, a lot of people from Bush's campaign and from Clinton's campaign as well have said the same thing, which is had Lee Atwater lived and had he run the 92 campaign, George Bush easily would have won a second term. And Clinton would not even have been the nominee. Well, now it's crazy. It's crazy to think like he would be on fucking like CNN talking about how the, what Trump's doing is completely different. And yeah, you know what I mean. Like he would be one of those people. He would be a pundit now, like you know, talking about what he did. You know what I mean? Like oh yeah, it's just so interesting now, especially with how big and how political news is all over, and every everybody that's had a job for a day in Washington now is qualified for a pundit. Uh, you know, on TV, but. Like, I don't know, I, he would have he would have been a go to. No, absolutely. Because he was something that I don't that a lot of reporters admitted they had not really seen before. He was a showman and he was able to give them good copy, good quotes, great stories. And once again, and this is I mean, regardless of Republican, Democrat, whatever, for me, you know, looking at Bush as a candidate, there were stronger people to have won that nomination. Bob Dole. um, Jack Camp, all these other people that were stronger. George Bush was really a wimp of a candidate, and they somehow made him look tough and courageous. And there you go. But I, I and I, st- and I still think that had Lee Atwater lived, he would have, uh, he would have gotten a second term, George Bush. But like I said, I think it's interesting to know that this man was only given one campaign, and he ended up changing the entire face of American history and politics. Certainly a legacy he left behind. Yes, it is a legacy. And like I said, there's a fantastic documentary called Boogeyman. It's on YouTube. It it goes even further into who Lee Atwater was. But this campaign is so filled with quotable, memorable moments and things that sort of serve as like icons for modern campaigns. Like, we don't want another tank moment. Or, oh shit, this commercial's gonna be another Willie Horton. You know what I mean? All of the stuff that Atwater brought to the table in 88 is still being discussed and used today. This was a thing, this was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. Hello, my name is Governor Michael Dukakis, and this has been one of the nastiest presidential campaigns in our nation's history. And sadly, This commercial will now stoop to the level of Vice President Bush. George has been going around saying that I'm an elitist, a Harvard snob, out of touch with the common people. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Or as Socrates says, I desire only to know the truth and to live as well as I can. Which differs from the more hilarious translation by Dr. Ngumbe Magawa, Uh, But you're not stupid. I don't need to explain that. Me? An elitist? Tu ne sais pas de quoi tu parles, Mr. Bush. That's not elitist. Now, there are major differences between Mr. Bush and my platforms. Mine is like a Bejalou Petit Chablis 64, and Mr. Bush is clearly a Sauvignon Blanc from Pathmark with a twist-on cap. 
My vision for the economy is a Renoir. His, a Pollock. Foreign policy, me a Balanchine, he a Pina Bosch. George Bush can say I'm a Harvard elitist all he wants because at the end of the day, George, this knob is fit to process America for day. I'm Michael Dukakis and I approve this message. Thank you. This was a sketch. Bush went off. He became president. He served one term. Dukakis went back to teaching. And uh, I think he was still the governor of Massachusetts at the time. He was. So he was still completing his term as governor uh, and was taking the train to work every day. A man of the people. So and Dukakis is is interviewed in the Lee Atwater movie, which is which is very interesting. And also Dukakis just was I don't know. I just he also probably was not that strong of a candidate. Just a side note, political question, though. Does, do, you, do you have any political ads that stand out to you that you will never forget that like you saw and you're like, oh, my God. To me, like the Willie Horton one, I think is just like I said, it's just brilliant. Another one was the John Kerry Swift Boat ones. If you remember that in 2004, no, where they said, you know, it was all these people that was saying, you know, he wasn't a war hero. Oh, yeah. It was all the people who had served in his battalion or um, with him. Those are the ones. How about you? Herman Cain's pre- uh, press secretary talking about Herman Cain up against a brick wall while smoking a cigarette. Wait, is that real? <laughs> That's real. It's fucking real. Dude, dude looks like he's a guy who smoked. Like, I mean, his his fingers are stained and it's just like a Ken- Herman Cain. And he's like, yeah, Herman Cain. And I mean, it's it's. I could not believe, and I'll never forget that fucking ad. I have never heard that. I've never seen that. Oh, my God. There was one that Trump ran in 2020 that I actually thought was very effective, which was it was when they uh, when the defund the police movement was happening. It was a tell. It was a telephone that was off the hook and uh, like you, like glass was shattered in the back. So it was clear somebody had broken into somebody's home. Like there was a photo, I think, of like an old lady. So it was clear it was grandma's house. And. It was just it was a it was a pre-recorded message on the phone being like, unfortunately, due to funding, the police are only able to operate like answer a few calls today. So it's being like, if you vote for Biden, um, when the, and when they come after you, the police won't be able to help because he's defunded them. Um, it was I thought that was effective. No, yeah. I mean, I, I was to me, I was like, that's actually I think that's a really great way of counteracting uh, what the defund the police movement was doing. Not in a positive or negative way. I'm just talking about in terms of optics and stuff. No, abs- no, absolutely. Because you have to. I mean, you have to in 30 seconds or less figure out how you can get people to to switch over to your side. Well, it sounds like Atwater was certainly skilled at figuring out how to push the right buttons that would influence his people's perspective on the candidates they'd be voting for. Yeah, and I think what he tapped into was fear. I think that's that's what he was really able to tap into, which was what are they afraid of. And I hate to say it, but like the Willie Horton thing, he goes, they're afraid of they're afraid of black people. And that's what we're going to get them on. And it that's he knew or um, lack of defense where we're fear of being attacked by a foreign entity. He just knew what to tap people with. And like I said, he did make amends. And it's it's but I think at this point, the damage has been done because he sort of legitimized all of the dirty politics that we're seeing today. I can't remember an election where it, it was just two people talking about issues. Yeah, and I think that something you said that really resonated with me was the idea that it became about voting against the other guy rather than actually voting for the candidate of your party. Yeah. Because I think that that's so, such a common refrain we're mm-hmm. hearing nowadays, which is that people are not voting for Joe Biden because they want Joe Biden to be president. They're voting for Joe Biden because they don't want Trump to be president. So it's the yeah. voting for the negative rather than for the positive reason. It just seems so it's like it doesn't fit with the 
idealism that I think everyone wishes that it, politics could embody. You know, Chris, it's interesting. Chris Christie said something really fascinating, which is like the couple of days after Donald Trump won the election, uh, you know, Trump looked at him and said, hey, you didn't think I could win, did you? And Chris Christie said, actually, Mr. President, you didn't win. She lost. And I think that's I think that's important, which is like, I just hate this other person so much. I can't allow. Yeah, I'm sure there's lots of people who didn't think Biden was a great candidate, but they didn't want Trump. And I am sure in uh, 2024, there's going to be a lot of people who don't like Biden and they'll vote forever who the Republican is, most likely Donald Trump. The aggressiveness and the anger. I just watched the Republican debate that just happened, the fourth one between the four of them. I can't tell you what any of their policies are. I know that Ramaswamy doesn't like Nikki Haley, and I know that Chris Christie doesn't like Ramaswamy. You know what I mean? But I can't tell you what their policies are. I I don't I don't know where they stand on issues because every time they were asked a question, they pivoted to destroying the other person. And maybe that's also part of the Lee Atwater playbook, which is if you're not strong yourself, attack those around you, and you'll look stronger. Maybe they can justify and say, "Well, I'm outlining my political agenda by." contrasting myself to somebody else by saying like, well, this is what this person would be doing. And the implication being that I don't endorse that. But the, but like you said, that's not a platform that's negating somebody else's platform, not creating your own. So I think it, you're right. It's like politics is becoming more about the emotion of it rather than about the policy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's I don't know what I would do, but I can tell you what I won't do. And that's not going to, how's that going to help us? So Yep. So a very fascinating. Uh, to me, it's it, it's the it is the campaign that changed everything, uh, because we've never seen a campaign since that was played. I think, like any campaign prior to this. And like I said, you know, you watch the debates between these two guys, Bush and Dukakis, and they're civil and they're respectful of one another, and they both are very clear. They both clearly are aware that they have that they're have two different ways of how the country can work but they both respect each other. Like I don't I I I haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah. It's two individuals. One had a record, the one really didn't. Um and I'm not saying that he's a bad that George Bush is a bad person or he didn't have policy. I'm just saying one person was a governor and the other person really didn't have political policy. And so may, maybe like the Trump Clinton would be somewhat but that was so dirty. Trump just took it to a whole other level. Trump I think what what he did was like I'm not going to do coded shit. I'll just tell you I don't like Mexicans. Like, that was it. He's like, I'm not even going to code it. You don't have to read between the lines. And I think that's also moved the needle of politics. I, th- I, don't, I don't think we go back from that. Like, I don't think we go back from 88, and I don't think we're going to go back from 2016. And also, just one more time, just to really quickly underline, Roger Ailes, Roger Stone, all of these people from Fox that would go on to create Fox were all around Lee Atwater during this campaign. And so I think that also is, is pretty important. So that, anyway, so that's the uh, 1988 election, folks. It's what, uh, you know, <clears throat> changed American politics. And also, like Ray was saying, watch Dana Carvey and, and John Lovitz's Dukakis and Bush because it is, it is brilliant. It's so good. When he starts talking in Spanish, Dukakis. Was that something he always, was he trying to show that he was like cultured and? Yeah, he was trying to show that he was, yeah, that he was a, a man of the people. Yeah. So he does this speech. He goes, I am of the people. Las personas de Union. Like he starts like going off in 90 different languages. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rob. That was a very, very, I feel, I, I know I know a lot and have a lot of reference points now for all the craziness that we have today. Thank you. Thank you. Great party. Great party. Or should I say grand old party? A grand old party. And you know what they do at grand old parties, Ray? 
they play some games. This was a thing and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. Okay, so friends, uh, yes, we just learned all about the 1988 presidential election. There's another election coming up very, very soon, my friends. So I'm wondering if maybe one day we'll be talking about the 2024 election. But in the meantime, let's take a look back at the year 19. 19- 88, because not only did we lose decorum in the election, electoral process, we also lost a lot of great individuals in the year 1988. Mm. And we're going to see how many of them Daniel and Ray can remember. I'm going to give you a clue about somebody who passed away in 1988. Oh, and you're going to tell me if you can identify who this individual is, all right? We're gonna do a little tag teaming here, all right? It's gonna alternate between Daniel and Ray, Ray and Daniel. Oh, okay. Russell Johnson. Well, Ray has won the game, congratulations. Russell Johnson did not die. Russell Johnson, the professor from Gilligan's Island, died in 2014, actually, Ray, 2014. Whoa. Really? Oh, wow. But a good guess. So, um, gentlemen, uh, out of the sense of decorum, who would like to go first? Daniel, you're playing for the George Bush team. Ray, you're playing for the Michael Dukakis team. I nominate the good uh, the good gentleman from Massachusetts. He may take the floor first. Ray, you're going first. Okay, you ready? Wouldn't be prudent. All right, here we go. Let's see if you can guess these people, all right? Uh, there's going to be 16 in total. 16 in total. Wow. All right? Let's go. All right. It's a big year for death. Ray. The composer of My Fair Lady died in 1988. Who is the composer? Uh, Low. Congre- nicely done. One Good point for, for Michael Dukakis. Daniel Schwartzberg, um, John Waters' muse, died in 1988. She was a famous drag queen. What was her name? Oh, I was listening. There's a great, he has some great interviews about about her. Um, It's... The, oh, God, 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 God. Divine? Divine? Divine. One point for Daniel Schwartzberg. Divine. Yes. All right. Although, although it's sad. I, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, but also I'm sorry for for the passing. Sorry for your loss. We're celebrating. We're celebrating. Ray, Governor Dukakis. Andy Gibb died in 1988. What, what singing group was Andy Gibb a part of? Well, Andy Gibb was, his brothers were part of the Bee Gees. Ah, nicely done. But... Andy Gibb wasn't part of the Bee Gees. Oh. What was he a part of? He was part of Andy Gibb. He was the uh, breakout younger brother of the, the Gibbs. The more you know. Nicely done. Okay. Okay. Sad story. Daniel, in 1988, a gentleman named Michael Ramsey died. You probably don't know Michael Ramsey's name, but you might know his title as the Archbishop of... Archbishop of Canterbury? Getting pussy. Point for Daniel Schwartzberg. Wow. It's like the only archbishop ship that I know. <laughs> Ray, back to you. This gentleman uh, never once played hockey, but is very important to the game. What's his name? Uh, Jeff Puck. Final answer? Yeah. Frank Zamboni. Oh, uh, Puck. Yeah, he's the stick guy. All right, back to Mr. Schwartzberg. All right. This uh, car manufacturer, the man who created a uh, sports car empire, passed away. What was his name? John DeLorean. Enzo Ferrari. Ah, oh, shoot. Uh, Ray, Ann Ramsey passed away in 1988. Uh, she is best known for this movie, Throw Blank from the Train. Mama. Good choice. Daniel Schwartzberg, German actor Gert Froby died, best known as James Bond villain. Uh, Gold? 
member. I oh, Goldfinger, 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 yeah, Goldfinger. Goldfinger, nicely okay. done. Point Sorry, for that was Daniel awesome Schwartzberg. Awesome, man, awesome powers. All right. Ray Hebel, this cartoonist gave us Gomez, Morticia, Pugsley, and Wednesday. Mr. Adams. Full name, please. Charles? Is it Charles Adams? Yeah, yeah, dude, you got it. yeah nicely got it. done. Nicely done. Mr. Schwartzberg. All right. This individual. This individual was best known for being one of Orson Welles's collaborators and ran the Juilliard Acting School. Oh, God. Collaborators as a creator or as a performer? Creator. Oof. Man, the Juilliard Acting School. I don't got it. I don't got it. Do you know it, Ray? You know where the best place for a bathroom would be? Oh, you know, a John? In the house, man. John Houseman. Nicely done, Ray Hebel. I'll give that to Ray. I'll give that to Ray. He stole it. Probably best remembered for if you're a Naked Gun fan, he's the very patrician uh, DMV instructor. Well, and it's and, it, and he also he played he, he that he, he won an Oscar for a movie and then did the TV version of the of the, his role. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Wait. Whose turn is it now? Ray. Back to you. Yeah. Back to Ray. Yeah. Ray. We lost this gentleman, best known as the singer of the song "Pretty Woman." Uh. Ray Orbison. Roy Orbison, sorry. Oh, nicely done, nicely done. Daniel, you probably don't know the name Richard Castellano, but you know one of the most famous lines from The Godfather that he uttered, which was, leave the gun, take the blank. Cannoli. Nicely done. Ray Hebel, sadly, this young actress died at the age of 12. Her name was Heather O'Rourke. Only a few years earlier, in 1980, she was the star of this horror film. Poltergeist. Nicely done. Nicely done. We've only got three more here, guys. So here we go. Let's see how you do. Daniel Schwartzberg, this individual took over the Three Stooges after Shemp Howard passed away. Fun fact, only three people went to his funeral. I took over from Shep, you said? Shemp Howard. It was Curly, Shemp, and this individual who had it written into his contract that he could not be hit which kind of defeats the purpose of the Three Stooges. But the best story is only three people went to his funeral and they were his gardeners at his condominium complex. You know, I yield my I yield my remaining time to to Ray because I do not know. Oh, wow. Ray, who is it? That would be uh, Mr. Joe Besser. Joe Besser. Okay. So wait, now back to Ray. It's your turn, right, Ray? Yes, we each get one more, I think. Yes, so Ray, um, the person who voiced the naughty uh, puppet Madam passed away. What was his name? Fuck. I, uh, God, pass. Today no, or just I've never heard of this. Wayland Flowers. Wayland Flowers and Madam. Yes. Damn it. And then last one. Oh, I wish we had this one, but my, uh, just for my, but, my my brain went to Willie Tyler and Lester. No, but hey, good, good guess. Last one, Daniel. This person was a writer on the I Love Lucy show that Lucille Ball called the brains of the operation. Um, his name has been mentioned quite often this past year with the release of a certain film. Release of a certain film. Um, the film is just about this person? It is not. The, he shares the same name as this person. Oh. Jess Barbie. I, I don't know. I don't know. Right. Well, it's one of those things when you watch I Love Lucy and you go like, well, there's some gags that are like a little out there, but then some you just go, 
That's an Oppenheimer. No! Jess Oppenheimer. Jess Oppenheimer. Jess Oppenheimer. There you go. So, all right. So, Daniel, you were our official point keeper. I was the scorekeeper, but I think we could all tell from the progress of this game what the ultimate outcome was. But final count, Ray, nine, four for Daniel. But uh, I will be contesting these election results, and I will make sure to uh, start my campaign online. Make sure you push the Chad all the way down, okay? No hanging ones. You gotta can't have them hanging. No, no, God, no, no. I uh, I pushed down Chad low, and now I have to go to jail. So I don't think I did this right. All right, Rob. It was right after Hillary won the Best Actress for Boys Don't Cry, and she forgot to mention him in the uh, thank you speech. Yeah, and then Hillary had her email scandal, and things got real bad. Wait, that Hillary, right? Yeah, I don't. I'm. History is kind of, I'm kind of confused by which Hillary we're talking about. Is there more than one Hillary? I don't know. I'm confused. I don't know, but either way, she did lose that election, but goddamn what a good actor. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful performances. Couldn't govern a country, but boy, she ran Clint Eastwood around as his manager in uh, Million Dollar Baby. And I really appreciate that. Okay, so friends, this was the uh, 1988 presidential election. Uh, before we go, Ray, where can everyone find us? I'm not going to give people my address. No, 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 like social media oh, and stuff. Th- this was sorry. Uh, this was a thing pod Instagram. www.thiswasathing.com. And then Daniel, why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners, our fine listeners? Ooh, I see you, listener. You're looking good today. Tell them where uh, they can go if they want to subscribe. Here's some more. All right there, Ray. Well, if you are enjoying this show, enjoying what you're hearing, then you can always subscribe in whatever podcast app you listen to, your favorite podcatcher, as they say. Ooh. And if you are really liking it, which we hope you are, we just appreciate you giving it a listen. That just means a lot. But if you're liking it and willing to throw a rating or a review our way, we always appreciate that. So thank you so much. And like Ray said, if you subscribe on Patreon, you'll get access to exclusive ad-free episodes as well as some bonus episodes that we record. And you can similarly subscribe on Apple Podcasts where we have an additional tier called And Another Thing. And that gives you access to the same bonus content and ad-free episodes. But as always, we just appreciate you all listening. So thank you so much for your support. And if you have any email feedback or things you want to let us know, check out the show notes. We have an email address right in there and you can send us a note and uh, let us know what you're thinking. Or if you've got some inside scoop on some of our topics, like maybe you're a you're an inside political operator during this 1988 election hubbub. We'd love to hear from you. Especially you, Governor Dukakis. Please reach out. We know you're listening. Should all acquaintance be forgot Happy New Year, everybody. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cutcut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, 
our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic, DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 